Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Fast am I and welcome to Spotlight with me, Sarah Hendy. This afternoon we'll be speaking to two tapestry artists who've travelled all the way from Orkney to exhibit their work here on the Isle of Man. Today's programme comes to you from the Hodgson Loom Gallery in Laxey Woolen Mills, where tapestry artists Ros Bryant and Louise Martin are exhibiting a collection of work inspired by their journey from their home in Orkney over land and sea to the Isle of Man. I began by asking Ros how she came to discover her love of tapestry weaving. Well, I grew up in West Yorkshire, um, which is very much a textile area, so the sound of what you can hear possibly in the background <laughs> now is a very familiar sound to me. There'd be weaving shed doors open as I walked to school and such. Um, and I began to weave uh, cloth weaving and a bit of felt making and spinning and all of that kind of thing. And then eventually went to one exhibition that was just small tapestries and it literally knocked the wind out of me. Uh, just the freedom of expression, the tremendous range that's possible within tapestry literally took my breath. Um, and I found myself a tutor and I um, got a part-time job and I gave up my house and I went tapestry weaving as a mature student in my 30s. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there is a difference between sort of standard weaving and tapestry weaving. Are you able to explain what that is? Hmm. Well, fundamentally, um, we're not necessarily weaving cloth, but um, a piece of artwork, be it a literal image or or not literal image at all. Um, Some people define tapestry as meaning that the weft doesn't go all the way across the piece in the way that it does with a shuttle. You wing it across and bang, that's one row. In generally speaking, with tapestry, we've got several different threads on the go. That's, um, that's one way people define it. But fundamentally, I think it's because it's a piece of artwork rather than a functional piece of cloth. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. uh, For you, what, where's the freedom in tapestry? What do you feel um, you get out of tapestry that you might not get out of um, sort of standard weaving, perhaps? Hmm. Sorry, big, <laughs> that's an big questions for a Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting one. With standard weaving, you set off and you've got your warp spaced at a, at a regular spacing and mm. your weft goes across it. By and large, you, you're showing your warp and your weft in a balanced weave and that's what you get. You set it up and you, you might do 100 yards and that's what's coming out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it almost like a cloth. It's, um, it's consistent probably and, um, and remains the same throughout the, the piece almost, although there will be differences. It's quite, quite consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also a, a base a process that's very most, much based on a machine, mm-hmm. um, and it can be very creative, and people do some lovely, lovely things with it, but um, tapestry works on a very simple frame, or we've just had a, a week with students round about the island, and we've been weaving on pieces of glass, on on branches in the, in the woods, we've been weaving on all sorts of things. So anything really that can have a thread wound around it can be a tapestry loom. Mm-hmm. So it's very flexible. Wow. Um, yeah. How did you learn? How did you sort of uh, hone your craft? I began in an evening class and then very quickly I had the privilege of an Arts Council grant and a tutor. Um, and I became a student after my own fashion without having to go back to college, mm-hmm. uh, which was great. And I just wove and wove and wove, which I think with any of these things that are about making, um, I think an awful lot of the learning is and the discovery is in the doing. It's having an idea and think, oh, I wonder if it, and what if, and how, and, and mm-hmm. just... 
And you, you also had a tutor whose name I recognised as well. Mm, a lady called Joan Baxter, who's based now in the north of Scotland in a place called Brora, which is on the way to Orkney, which for me now is home. So it was actually quite handy. <laughs> What's her technique and what did she, what did you learn from her particularly? Because everyone must have different approaches and different sort of um, variations on this traditional craft. Uh, yeah, what did she sort of um, impart to you? Well, she's a very different weaver to me. She weaves um, very much large scale. She's got a very classic um, background, worked for a long time in studio weaving um, and very much based on sort of historic um, landscape kind of themes, um, which I'm not so much so on all of those counts, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, she also weaves in wool and I seldom use wool at all. I use everything else, but... Um, so what did I learn? I, she took me from being a hobbyist to being a committed self-supporting artist, which was a huge process. Mm -hmm. um, she also insisted that I learned dyeing, and I've used that a lot since because I like to dye maybe viscose and cotton and silk and linen and rayon all in one batch, and you get all sorts of different effects. And I work a lot from sea and, and kind of light, and, and that, that gives you a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, on a practical side, um, it's I've I've not heard of somebody um, dyeing different sort of materials together in one batch. How do the different um, how do the different fibres behave in that process, and, and what how do the outcomes differ? That depends slightly <laughs> on the on the spin. Um, yeah. If you get a very tightly spun yarn, it may not take up the 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 dye quite so so much. But for example, a viscose most times will take up the dye more readily than a cotton will in the same batch um, and silk again is different. Linen you is often quite more robust, it's, it, it takes dye a little bit less readily mm -hmm. um, but again then once it's dyed you've got the various kind of luster, you get some that are slightly hairy and some that are really quite hard and springy and others mm -hmm. that are um, quite shiny and which is super. Mm. And, um, and what is it about that process that you enjoy? don't actually enjoy the process <laughs> I enjoy the the, the product I think yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the freedom to make many colors that are very subtly different combined with the with the textures which then when you combine because with the other thing with tapestry weaving you seldom use just one thread together mm -hmm. in, in your weft or even possibly your warp as well but certainly the weft you combine them so the myriad effects and combinations that you can get by blending subtly different textures and colors and that and weights of yarn as well together in one mix so that's that's really what it gives me mm. yeah. and just a thought for the non-weavers out there the warp is top to bottom and the weft is right to left it's the that's where you maybe add more of the detail yes if you're weaving in a sitting up position i guess that is <laughs> yeah and <laughs> yeah. and looking at the, um i mean you've got so many gorgeous pieces on the wall here but just taking this one as an example tidal stream you i can't help but notice that it's not um it's not exactly straight up and down in, in terms of like the, the colours. You've got a lot of flow in here. Um, how, how did this one work? How do, you, how do you get that movement in something that's almost, almost like a grid, essentially? Uh, yes, officially weaving is a grid, but this is what's called eccentric weave. Anything okay. that deviates from the perpendicular is, is termed ex eccentric. And it is done in, in, in tapestry weaving historically. Here I've pushed it 
rather to its bounds and a little bit beyond and you can see that the surface has kind of buckled and things taken on a bit of a life of its own. It's describing the tidal stream around Orkney which is basically an archipelago of 60 odd islands and we get terrific, a bit like going the sea between uh, around the Calf of Man, we get a terrific flow that comes rushing through between the islands there. Wow. We've talked an awful lot about your textiles work, your, your tapestries, your weaving, how does that link to your stonework? Because, I mean, they're quite different materials, um, assuming you're not sort of um, enjoying the same qualities about those two different media. No, and yet there are, there are qualities in both media that I feel, for me, they're complementary. Mm -hmm. I do love stone and I do love yarn, so I suppose it's not difficult to, for me to put them together. It doesn't actually mm -hmm. seem a strange thing to do. Um, and yeah. what relationship is that? Well, the pieces in this exhibition anyway um, are firstly carved on slate and then secondarily woven. And I've woven by winding a warp around and then also winding the weft around, um, in this case perpendicular to the warp, and weaving it into the weft for where the two overlap. So for a lot of the piece, the, the warp and the weft are just exposed against the stone so you can see through them to the surface of the stone and then other areas they're combined in weave. Mm -hmm. A lot of your stonework, it's it's carving. Um, how did you how did you come to to find this as um, process that you enjoy? I grew up picking up stones. I love them. I tried to study geology and discovered that actually what I like is stones, not not the science of them, just the substance and the character and the way they behave and things. Um, and watched letter carvers and just thought it was magical. And eventually got the chance to study with with a, a letter carver sculptor in Orkney. Um, and again, learned by doing and doing. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this a bit is almost become my my main medium now in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. Yes. What what inspired you with these with these bowl shapes? What were you, what were you trying to achieve there? They're taken um, from beaches in Orkney. They're boulders as as I found them, um, and because I mean a stone lands on the beach and it erodes according to its character. So we've got a sandstone piece um, with lovely iron veining through it and the veins are harder than the rest and than the sandstone behind. So they come to stand out and you get this lovely shape. And then when you carve into them, you never quite know what you're going to find inside in relation to the outside. Mm. Um, in Orkney, we also have what we call flagstone, which is not a million miles from the Manx slate in that it'll take a lovely polish. Mm. It's very fine grained and when you work work away with it um, you can get to a nice almost soapy kind of feel yeah. um, so yes it's just taking a boulder and looking at its kind of personality as you find it on the beach and then finding your way into it and, mm. and yeah is it is it that process of discovery that's appealing to you is it or is it um is it more about the feel of the work and the the actual chipping away at the piece it's about the discovery, I think. You you work away chipping and feeling, and it's quite slow. Um, I do the beginning of it with an angle grinder, but then quite quickly you're into rubbing with sandpapers and carborundum block and things. Um, yes, and, and you work away and you think, well, actually, that really should that should go in that direction as you work down. Um, I found a lot of iron parites once in the bottom of mm -hmm. one, and that's just kind of beautiful, like gold mm -hmm. in the bottom of a bowl. And yes, you just never know. So it's the discovery, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you and Louise cross paths? Because the journey that you took, um, which sort of inspired this exhibition, was really quite a special one. 
Yes, Louise and I have been crossing paths professionally for a great number of years. The tapestry world is quite small and um, we've both worked within it um, and with the same organisations and exhibitions and things for quite some time. Um, and now we're working together on the Orkney Island of Westray. Um, it's one of the smaller islands up to the north end of, of Orkney um, and we're been, we've been doing building work on a croft, uh, uh, two houses and a collection of outbuildings and built a new purpose-built studio which Louise largely designed. Um, over this last while and next summer we're going to be teaching there um, and have a artist residency space and exhibitions and things going on mm. so that's been our adventure this last wee while um, this journey comes from taking time out from the building coming back to what's home for Louise and back to her family and wanting to take time out of being builders and keep a handle on the thing that we mm -hmm want to be in the end which is which is artists clearly and apply it to the situation that we're in um so really that's where it came from um and yeah but for me Isle of Man is a, is a relatively new place and I'm coming as a visitor running around discovering things yeah. Um, yeah. it's lovely how you've sort of traveled together as creative friends who are both you've got your own independent lines of work but you've taken the same journey and you've got you've each got different interpretations of the same journey of course but um it's a lovely thing to see what a gorgeous collection of work thank you very much for sharing your stories with us today thank you spotlight brought to you by the isle of man arts council I'm Sarah Hendy and you're listening to Spotlight, which comes to you from the Hodgson Loom Gallery at Laxey Woolen Mills, where we've just been speaking to artist Ros Bryant about her collection of stonework and tapestry. We now speak to artist Louise Martin. So as I was just saying to Roz, you two went on quite a special journey really from Westray in Orkney down to the Isle of Man. But as as yeah, it's a it's very apparent in this exhibition that your interpretations of that journey are quite different. Um, what, as, as it was sort of a homecoming for you, what did that journey mean to you? Because as we were just saying before I hit the record button, it's a journey many people will have taken thousands of years ago, but of course, in a, on a very different route across the sea, you, you travelled through the land. Um, it must have been quite, a, well, inspiring to say the least. Uh, it's quite interesting coming home, I think, the way that uh, maybe I might have interpreted the island 40 years ago to how I do now. And each time you come back and it reveals itself in a different way. And um, my experience changes over the years and how I wish to interpret, thing, interpret things is different as well. Uh, it's really interesting being on Westray. It's very few trees, <laughs> very low-lying. There's a lot of sky, a lot of sea, and very little land, really, when you're looking at it. Um, very special as well, a small community of six, 600 people. Um, but I didn't realise the Isle of Man was small when I grew up. It was <laughs> very big. <laughs> you know, in some ways it was everything. And yet it was still a community, and that's really where I'm moving to. It's a place with a community. Um, but there are very, in terms of themes within the exhibition, you're seeing a lot of sea, you're seeing a lot of land, um, and marks on the land, really. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they repeat themselves. It's just that they look different because of the locations. 
And have you always been based by the sea? I mean, where did you study? Has the sea been sort of part of your landscape throughout your life or were there periods of time where you away from it where um, perhaps, I don't know, as an islander, I feel like it quite affects me when I'm not near the sea. Was it the same for you? Um, well, I grew up in Solby, so not quite on the sea. <laughs> um, but I would always say when I, when I moved around that I had a sense of the sea. And I think um, that really has followed with me. And I've, when you live in land, and a decade ago I spent some time in Mongolia, and you really, you know, the sea is not close. <laughs> and um, yeah, just that breeze. But the, there's something about it that I don't think I can describe that sense of it. That you know, you know it. Well, you know you're special. <laughs> you know that, that sea aspect really, really changes a place from being attached to something to being uh, your own identity, I suppose. And as you say, that connection to the sea and um, sort of living somewhere where the sea and the sky is such a big part of your landscape um, is clear in your work. Um, I wonder, you mentioned Mongolia there. On your travels, did you did you pick up any um, any new processes or any inspiration that has affected the way you work perhaps a decade ago i i went there and at the time i was working on oh, a two million pound tapestry project i'd been involved in it <laughs> for um almost a decade at the time i was weaving medieval tapestries and it was a significant birthday and i wished to get into the middle of nowhere and i went and I spent um, a lot of time just doing cream and white tapestries up to then. And Mongolia was really, a sp it's a very, very special place. And it totally um, changed the way I wished to produce my own work. So I was working for a studio. It was very technical. really enjoyed that aspect. Very logical, quite mathematical, actually. Um, and had targets and deadlines. Um, and I realised that I was becoming a very, very good technical weaver. But by doing that, it doesn't mean to say I didn't put everything into it. But I felt that I needed to weave from within, within rather than from out, sort mm -hmm. of inwards. Yeah. And so within my own work, it started to be kind of how I feel, really. And I really really went from some very complex cartoons through to not weaving with any um, cartoon, no sense of what it will be at the end. Um, and really just choosing the colours that I felt um, was right, were right for the place and right for the way I was to interpret the place. And that everything was then, um, when I wove it, it all came out onto the loom very very different process and in some ways they look very easy pieces I think but actually to emotionally connect and and really if it's textiles it should be like that you're mm -hmm. you're you know we're so seduced by yarn and you know most people want to come up to a woven piece and touch it mm -hmm. you know the, there's a quality of a woven piece that's so different to paint you know um, and and it seemed a shame that I was treating it uh, with such a um, um, structure, I suppose, and, and and I just wanted to feel it again and see it and and enjoy um, how young how colours work together. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a really incredible process over the last ten years. I spent time in Iceland with residency several months there, and Finland and Turkey, 
and I've done a lot of work and um, in the last two years it's been a lot about Orkney as well and, and the work about the Isle of Man so um, place is very much um, the starting point for my work but what you'll see is very varied work and the reason it's varied is it is it's, it's sort of comes from within the idea mm -hmm. rather than me thinking that's how I wish it to be, that's my style, that's, you know, that's what people know me for, I don't, it's whatever feels right and the way that it comes out. So it's kind of a response to the place, it's your mm -hmm. own expression mm -hmm. in response to that place. Mm -hmm. um, as you say, they are very different processes. How did you come to be weaving medieval tapestries? Because, like you say, it's very technical and I imagine very difficult, detailed work. Uh -huh. um, well, I studied um, my degree in Middlesex, um, Masters in Belfast, and after that I, I had a little residency in India at the time, and then um, and when I was out there, the, a job came out up to weave with a studio, and they said, oh, can you weave this piece? And I said, oh, that's funny because I'm in India and I can't even get warp. Never mind, <laughs> weave what you're asking for. But anyway, I subsequently got the job and I, I worked for the studio on a piece for um, House Westminster and uh, Sir Timothy Sainsbury. And then, and then they were looking, this, this project at Stirling Castle came up and they were looking for people that they'd worked with before, but in a satellite studio. So we were, we were in the Stirling Castle um, in a purpose-built shed for us and watched by upwards of half a million people a year and three of us wove tapestries that were upwards from two to four years they they took um, so it was really my relationship with the studio that they knew me and they trusted that I hit targets and could weave and could weave well and and would be really committed to it so um, we used to go out to New York each year and we'd look at um, medieval tapestries and meet with conservators and, and, and study and then, and then come back and weave it in front of, front of the public. So not sample pieces, but pieces now that you can see in the Royal Palace if you ever go to, go to Stirling. No pressure then. <laughs> wow. How does that world operate? You talked about working for a studio mm -hmm. in a satellite studio. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with the with the tapestry industry, how do you become a weaver and how do you get work and sort of maintain your career in this specialist area? Well, we would like there to be more tapestry weavers, but um, to be employed is very hard. There are two commercial studios in the UK, one Ducat in Edinburgh and the um, West End Tapestry Studio which is based down in West Sussex so there's very few opportunities um, they've started doing some apprenticeships but um, and a lot of the university courses have now stopped teaching tapestry so it, it, it's hard for us to think in the future that there'll be many people but what I did was like I said I did a degree I did a master's I didn't go in apprenticeship level and learn the skills I came in at a point where I'd fully formed ideas and then formed into a, the structure of a studio. And, and I say it's a very, very different process. You go in, um, a client has an image um, and you work to that image and what they wish for. And, and you need to take pleasure in that, in the way that you can interpret something how somebody would like and I think it made me learn that I could weave in lots of different ways and adapt and uh, that that uh, I was quite skilled in that and be able to adapt and change 
which is also helps my work here and helps when I'm teaching a lot because I can come from it in lots of different ways. But it's a it's very, very hard to earn a living in weaving now and there's really not a huge amount of us. And is the setup sort of a, on a on a freelance basis, the studio receive a commission and they need to find um, the talent to fulfil that? Yes, uh, I mean, even though I worked 10 years weaving medieval tapestries, my first contract was two years. Um, and then <laughs> and then I got another contract and another contract. So so even something that on the f- looks like there was a lot of security wasn't a huge amount. The first time I went into the studio, it was for eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, no holiday, no days off oh, wow. sort of thing. And, um, um, and, and it evolves now. So mm-hmm. for... Um, for the Ducat, it's a Monday to Friday job. To be doing something for such long hours, for such long periods, to have two years, four years stretching out ahead of you and knowing that every day is going to be very similar in a sense. Um, what kept weaving tapestries alive for you? What is it about the process that made you happy to, to get up for work every day? Uh, because you're always learning and um, we, because we were studying medieval tapestries, so you're, you're, you're given the opportunity to study something and have time with something that you, you probably wouldn't do if the sort of reality of the world was there. Um, and throughout the period of time, you got better and better. And a lot of them were medieval techniques. So there were techniques that we were not taught um, at university. So there was a whole learning process. You're also sitting with different weavers as you're working. So we were three people on a loom. We worked seven days a week and a rolling rotor, so we covered ourselves. That was Ros Bryant and Louise Martin there talking about their exhibition at the Hodgson Loom Gallery, which runs until the 19th of July in Laxey. So do head along to that to see their incredibly intricate work. The Isle of Man Symphony Orchestra's summer concert takes place this Saturday, July the 13th at St Ninian's Church in Douglas. The programme will include Bizet, Butterworth and an Isle of Man premiere by Manx composer Roy Baker, who's the symphony orchestra's principal clarinet player. The piece is called On a Lonely Moor and incorporates some traditional Manx melodies. Tickets are £14 for adults, five for children and are available from the Lexicon Bookshop in Douglas and the Bridge Bookshops in Ramsey and Port Erin. For now, though, that's all we have time for. But do join me again next Wednesday at half past five. And in the meantime, find the Spotlight blog and podcast at manxradio.com. Have a lovely creative week. Sign you. <laughs>